Hello, everyone. This is Vegan Theology, and I am Sarah Hale, and I'm joined by my husband, Kevin Hale. Hey, what's going on? Hello, Kevin. Hey. How are you today? Good, how are you? I am well. I'm excited to be here with you finally, and yeah. it's been, uh, yeah, we've been trying to get to the microphones for a few days. It's been and busy. <laughs> it has been busy. Here we are. Yeah. So thank you for joining us and joining us on this theological journey as we have been discussing well the first five episodes have really been focused on we've been camping out i guess in genesis chapters one and two yeah really just exploring some new ideas there about um, what god's creation as accounted in um, the hebrew book of genesis reveals about the character of god and God's intentions for for his good creation. And we've just really seen how God is a God of nonviolence and love. So today we're going to go ahead and, and expand that outside of just Genesis 1 and 2 to start to look at what the scripture has to say about the new creation. So I think maybe last time we mentioned that we're trying to lay a foundation, a framework where we have these two bookends, I guess, starting with God's intentions in the Garden of Eden with um, creation and then <clears throat> all the way to the new creation where God will ultimately fulfill God's intentions. Yeah, his original intentions yeah. will be fulfilled. Yeah, which is, which is awesome. Right. So we're going to be kind of just doing a survey of the scriptures. We've been drawing from N.T. Wright. G.K. Beale, John uh, Walton. And Thielman. Was his oh, Frank, Frank Thielman. With Frank. his book, The New Creation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them focus in on some of the same texts in scripture, the same passages of scripture that use new creation language. It's fun to look at the commonalities in scripture between the new creation and the original creation right? and how they both reveal beautiful things about God. Yeah. And J. Richard Middleton also has a book called the new heaven and the new earth, which really gets deep into this, which I think we're going to be referencing quite a bit for our next episode or two after this. But, yeah. yeah. And I think I'd like to interject into the conversation right here. Like, there was definitely a long period of my life, I think, where I felt like conversations around eschatology, end times, theology, I really viewed that largely as a waste of time. Mm -hmm. It became a little bit of a pet peeve of mine in Bible college and Bible school of just seeing, you know, and it was normally <laughs> the male students. I don't know why, but... I don't ever remember observing female students get embroiled in these <laughs> arguments, but you, it was a common sight as you go through campus yeah. in the library or in the cafeteria or in the student lounges to see a group of young men sitting around arguing things like eschatology, pre-mill, post-mill, you know, war and rapture and... You know, and I'd, dispensational and, theology <laughs> versus covenantal theology, whatever. Yeah, and progressive I was, dispensationalism. I yeah. just remember always thinking, you know, we are in downtown Chicago. Yeah. There are suffering people all around us. 
right now and you're in here arguing about something that we can never be certain of and until it starts happening (laughs) until god reveals and so i just felt like it was this unfortunate waste of time however i have since changed my mind about that a little bit because i've come to see how our eschatology, our idea of God's plan, the goal, um, what's what's the future look like, our our beliefs about that really affect how we show up in this world and how we show up in life and how we view our responsibilities. Um, And so I think we're going to be getting into some of that. And I think it it really marries well, this conversation, with how a, a view of the new creation that we're putting forth really justifies, you know, a, a vegan lifestyle, yeah. a caring for creation that is so, so often lacking within the church. Right. And I think in our next two episodes, we're going to get deeper into that. We're going to unpack. This is sort of setting things up for the next two episodes, but also this is part of a part of the framework that we're, trying to achieve here, but I agree that when you look at the future creation, the new creation, and the goal of it, it's a very vegan existence. We're having this conversation just today. Our ideas about resurrection and heaven and, you know, we grew up in the church, and again, we're going to really go deeper into this next episode, but our worship songs and a lot of our Christian culture and our, the tracks, if you've ever done evangelism, you know, chick tracks or other tracks, they talk about going to heaven. And when we do evangelism, we talk about going to heaven and our praise and worship songs talk about going to heaven. And that idea is really a Greek idea. It's not a Jewish idea. It's not a first century Christian idea. And so we're going to go deeper into that next episode. But you know, this is what we grew up with until we went to Bible college and we realized, oh, wait a minute, we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. That's really God's space. God created us to spend our time on earth and then the new earth. But with that, like I was mentioning resurrection, I know we have this idea in our minds about the rapture and so we, we know this phrase, the dead in Christ shall rise and that, you know, bodies are going to come up out of the ground and meet the Lord in the air. The conversation I had with you, Sarah, was that like, I thought, oh yeah, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Our bodies are going to resurrect if we're already passed. And we're going to, what, we're going to go into heaven in material bodies. Like I always think of heaven as a, as a, as a spiritual place. Like it's not material. Mm. And I think you might've had a different idea. Yeah. I've always, I've always seen heaven as more of a, a material place somehow that yeah. Yeah, we would have new bodies, like perfected bodies right. in heaven is I think the theology I was taught. When I think people talk about walking the streets of gold and things, but I think that's really the new Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. So it will be a physical place on earth. But anyway, all that to say that I think what I'm getting at right now, and again, we're going to go deeper into this in future episodes is that the first century Christians and the Jewish mind didn't think of disembodied souls. They didn't think that somehow their body's going to die and their soul was going to go up to heaven. That's not how they thought about it. 
So like by definition, that is a dis- you've just described the platonic idea of death. Right. So it's just so interesting how the, what the Bible reveals is the death of death, I guess, the, ab- the destruction of death, whereas what we're describing is more like a platonic description of death, which is, yeah, that the body is left behind, the body is cast off, because again, the Gnostic platonic Greek thinking is that the material is corrupted and evil and valueless and yeah, of no real value, especially eternal value. And it's only the spiritual, the intellectual that has spiritual value. And so that really bled in, had a huge impact into our theology. Yeah, our Western thinking. And I think that plays into why Christians today, many conservative Christians do not seem to care about caring for creation. Oh, absolutely. Because I think that that Western Greek thought plays into their mind somehow in our theology. It's embedded in there that we don't need to care about this this world. We're going to leave this world and God's going to clean it all up. But as we're learning, especially once you really start digging into this idea that God is actually not going to create a brand new earth, he's going to renew the current earth that we're living in. And Romans 8.21 speaks to this. It says, The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and decay. And the idea is that we're not getting a brand new creation. Yeah, let's go ahead and just read this beautiful passage um, in Romans chapter 8, beginning with... Let's see, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So, I mean, if you look carefully there... It does not say that this creation is going to be destroyed, thrown away, discarded, cast out. Right. It says that this creation is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's going to obtain the freedom of the glory. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And I love, I love this because, again, it's not just focused exclusively on humankind. Right and humankind's freedom from bondage, and humankind's redemption, which so often, in fact, I hate to say it, but even in some of the resources we've been researching for this podcast, it's like they'll talk about the curse on the animals, the enmity between humans and animals. They'll talk about, you know, passages like this, and they completely overlook 
they just focus exclusively on how much humans are suffering in the present age. Right. Very anthropocentric. So anthropocentric, even though the text itself isn't just focusing on humankind. Right. The text is talking about how animals are suffering. <laughs> the creation is suffering. The creation is like in the pains of childbirth, groaning in the pains of childbirth, longing to be returned to the good creation, to w the way it's supposed to be. And, I mean, that's one of the things I've always loved about this yeah, passage. Yeah, and I think uh, N.T. Wright, let me try my Latin here, he says that the new creation will not be creatio ex nihilo, or a creation out of nothing, but it will be a creatio ex veterae, which is a creation out of the old. Mm. So God is not going to, like like you just mentioned, uh, destroy the current world and create a brand new one out of nothing. He's actually going to restore and renew the current creation. So, Which I think we see evidence. One of the proofs for that statement is think about the resurrected Christ, right? Christ was resurrected in his body with the same scars. He bore the scars, right? right? It's not like God gave him a perfected body. He was resurrected in glory, made even better in some way, and yet it was his body still, right. his body who had been nailed on the cross. And so in the same way, this creation is the one that God is going to redeem and bring to fulfillment, not something that he creates us from nothing or from scratch. Right. Right. And I think that plays into the idea that we can't abandon this world. And as Christians, we need to, you're mentioning eschatology. Mm -hmm. Some theologians use the term already not yet, meaning that Christ when he resurrected, he was the beginning of the new creation in this fallen world, in the present. So as we try to kind of separate out the, our, the Greek influence on our theology yeah. and like get back to what, how the Hebrews thought about things and how, and how the Hebrew text actually speaks about this stuff, one kind of extra biblical or apocryphal text that N.T. Wright looked at um, was Second Maccabees, um, which really pulls out the fact that the Hebrew mind, all of their theology was based on two theological constraints. Um, on the one hand, the goodness of creation. And on the other hand, God's commitment to justice. Hmm. So again, that's very different than the way the Greeks thought about the earth, right? Right. So in the Hebrew mind, creation is very good and sacred. And we've lost that. We've, we just have. We've lost that. And, and then on the other hand, God's commitment to justice and peace. So in the Hebrew mind, God is committed to putting things right. Now, we in the West, again... We take the promise of God putting things right. We hear, oh, God's going to come and judge. Right. That's judgment. When, when we, we read God's going to put things right, that's very, very different than the Hebrew way of thinking about God putting things right. 
um, God is going to repair. God is going to rebuild. God is going to fix what has been broken. He's getting the original creational project back on track. You know, this with this Platonic Greek influence, this Gnostic thinking that we have, you know, we've been taught that this world can go to hell, basically. Right. But that completely ignores what God said and what God, God's committed to. It's ignoring the original goodness of creation and God's divine longing to put it back on track. Yeah, and I think that fits in with similar ideas where God is present in the world. His presence brings this peace and it brings this security and this safety. Kind of what you're saying, the justice. And I believe that in a just world, there will be no lack, right? Right. Everyone will. In fact, N.T. Wright says our platonic idea is that we're going to leave here to go live with God in heaven. But the Hebrew idea is how can we live in such a way that God can come dwell with us here? Right. And so that's what we're trying to get back to. Right. And that was the idea in Eden. Eden was this good environment that God set up, that he placed man in. And we see in Genesis 3.8, it talks about God walking in the garden. And then we also see later in Leviticus 26.12, and we can read a larger passage, but God walking in the camp around the tabernacle. Similar idea in Deuteronomy 23.14, and then there's a reference to it in 2 Samuel 7. And in all these cases where God is present um, in these environments, there's peace, enemies are cut off, there's safety, there's security, there's plenty, mm -hmm. there's a bounty for his people. And to me, again, it says something about God's character and the environment that he wants to inhabit and that he wants us to inhabit. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is here. And once you start, you get a handle on this, you start to see this, you start to see this throughout. And we're just, you know, hitting a few passages really, but you know, one example, if I were to read it, and, and again, this is just an idea of what the new creation will be like. And I think we've alluded to this and, and we can try to bring it out a little more. And that is that G.K. Beale's bringing this idea that Eden is a temple. Others have said it in T. Wright, John Walton. And they're saying in the new creation, the new Jerusalem, that is a temple as well that comes down out of heaven. God inhabits the new Jerusalem on the new creation. And so, again, you have this environment around God that is a peaceful environment, that there's plenty, there's bounty. And, and if you want to read further on this idea, G.K. Beale has a biblical theology book. It's called The Temple and the Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. Now, that's somewhat technical. So if you wanted a lighter version of that, he wrote a lighter version with one of his former students and pastor Mitchell Kim. It's called God Dwells Among Us, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. So with that in mind, I just want to give you a little taste of kind of some of what they're getting at. You know, they're saying Eden is in the temple, and then there's language that's used in Ezekiel 20, 13, and 14, talking about Eden as a temple um, in Ezekiel 46. The entrance to the temple was from the east, and interestingly, the entrance to Eden was from the east. So that's just, just one quick allusion, and also we kind of keep making talking about these bookends between Eden and 
and Revelation. And it's interesting in Revelation, if you once you really dig into it, you there's all there are all these there's all this imagery from Eden. One example, and again we're just hitting this quickly. Um, in Genesis two nine, it talks about the tree of life. In Genesis two ten to fourteen, it talks about the river of life. Well, in Revelation twenty two one and two, it talks about the tree and the river of life. Hmm. So these are just some quick ideas to get in your mind about what the new creation is going to be like. But just along those lines about what you know, God's think about God's character and His presence and what He creates the what the space He wants to inhabit. And this is Leviticus. Uh, 26. I'm going to read um, verses 5 to 6. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And it goes on, that's just an example, I think, of some yeah. of the environment that when where God wants the space that God wants to inhabit, he wants it to be a peaceful space. Yeah. I think is what we're trying to draw out here. And there are other illusions because this is what the new creation is going to be like as we know. Okay, and as we as we move on, you know, the prophet Isaiah is considered a major prophet um, because of the size of his writings. That book... We're not going to do justice justice to it here right now. Again, we're just kind of glossing through some passages. But he really makes a lot of references to the new creation. Just some a few examples. Isaiah 2, 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Hmm. I think that's an interesting idea that even it's talking about thinking because I think Sometimes in the New Testament, when you hear Jesus talking about forget divorce, the man who lusts after yeah. another woman. I mean, it's like it's it's about thinking. It's about the habits of thinking. You think you're, you're referencing where it says neither shall they learn war anymore. Right. They won't be studying. Right. There won't, preparing. Be, there won't be a need to. I mean, that's so beautiful. Like I've been privileged enough to never have to live in a war torn country and never have to be afraid for my life. You know, bombs being bombs falling out of the sky, things like that. But I know that a lot of humanity hasn't been so privileged. Right. Uh, and there's nothing more horrific than war. And so, yeah, the fact that th- this is imagining existence on this planet where that's all done away with. Right. There is no more war. But we don't even have to think about war. And all the implements of war are turned into, uh, you know, objects of creativity, you know, the opposite of destruction. Right. And another illusion is uh, Isaiah 25, 8. It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Mm. And again, this is the idea that we're getting to in the new creation, that there's not going to be any war, it's going to be peaceful, there's not going to be any death, there's not going to be any pain and suffering. And I think you're going to read a passage here from Isaiah 26. Uh, Isaiah 11. Oh, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, and of course, you know, as vegans, one of our favorite passages uh, is from Isaiah, talking about the new creation and dealing with not just humanity, but with our non-human animal fellow creatures. 
So Isaiah 11, starting in verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. And, you know, it's funny, I was reading today that somebody was suggesting that that was a metaphor, that that's not really going to happen in reality. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, fine. But even if it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor for what? Well, I'm, I'm like, what is your criteria for, I mean, right. I know I know this is getting into exegesis, right? Like, what do we take literally and what is a metaphor and what is, you know, on and on. But it's just so funny that we take... The, the previous passages you just read from Isaiah about no studying war no more right. and beating our swords into plowshares, like we take that literally. Right. But then when as soon as it starts talking about how animals are going to be friends with humans again and friends with each other again and th- fear will be removed, uh, you know, cruelty will be removed, the need to be predators and prey will right. be removed. Right. You know, for some reason, all of a sudden, that's metaphor. That sounds like a, a fairy tale to right. us. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I question that. No, I hear you. <laughs> but I was going to say, even if that's true, it's a metaphor for peace. You know what I mean? Hmm. And harmony. So, um, but no, I'm with you. I, I, I hear you 100%. And uh, just another passage, uh, Isaiah 26, 19, the dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. It's resurrection. That's Old Testament. That's an Old Testament uh, view of resurrection right there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then if we move on from the Old Testament for now, of course, the person of Jesus Christ, right? Right. Is a huge picture window into the kingdom of God and the new creation. I mean, so much of what Jesus did in the Gospels, what we what's recorded in the Gospels is like, Jesus kind of opened up the window between heaven and earth and let earth and let heaven come into earth. Right. And this is interesting. That just reminded me of something else that N.T. Wright was saying, which we think um, in this very Greek way that heaven is a million miles away from earth. They're, they're distinct, very separate places. And the Hebrew idea is much more they're overlaid they're connected. Right. And in fact, our, our scriptures would say that Jesus holds them together, that heaven and earth are held together. And we stand on the threshold between them and we're bringing heaven onto earth, right? And so and everything Jesus did from his birth in Bethlehem to every miracle, every time, you know, I was just, you know, not that long ago, we were even hearing a sermon about Mary and Martha and how Jesus was just saying, just be with me, just rest, you know, the work and the toil and your tasks and your to-do lists. And that's of this world where, you know, the work never ends and it's, it's tedious. And it just, it was like, just for this moment, 
Like, let's be in the new creation. Right. Which again, and that takes me, that reminds me of Sabbath, which God set up at the beginning with his people. Sabbath is supposed to be a little piece, a little taste of the way things are supposed to be. Right. A little taste of the new creation. It's not about what you can achieve today, what you can produce today, what you can acquire today. What you can commodify today. It's about be in relationship with me, worship, delight. Right. What gives you life? What gives you relationship? What gives you connection? What helps you celebrate this good creation? So, I mean, everything Jesus did was like a little taste of the new creation. I mean, including what we call miracles, right? It w- we call them miracles, but what if it, we, it'd be better to think of them as Jesus just kind of said, hey, here's a little taste of the new creation. Right. And, and it, of course, his own resurrection is definitely so important. It's not just, a, you know, something, you know, I think some theologians in the past have been like, well, you know, the re- we could take or leave the resurrection and, it, and maybe we can do without that doctrine. Right. You know, people have tried to kind of get rid of the resurrection, but actually it's everything. Because in that resurrection, it is Jesus saying, now my kingdom is here. And so this gets into the already, not yet, right? Right. That we're in this present age, but... Well, and and like when Paul talks about, I think it was the resurrection, he's saying it was foolishness to the Greeks. I mean, this is this idea of resurrecting material body and coming back to this God-forsaken place made no sense to them. Wow. So a lot of these theologians really focused in on the Sermon on the Mount as a very important new creation passage of Scripture. Jesus is saying these things that, especially in the Beatitudes part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying these things that just don't make any sense to this world. Right. Right. And, I mean, I can remember you know, reading a book where a guy was going in and doing prison ministry and with the prisoners, they were studying the Beatitudes and all of the prisoners were like, that doesn't work. That's not how the world is. What are you talking about? What is Jesus talking about? And it's because Jesus is saying, this is what the new creation is. And N.T. Wright points out, when God sets up God's kingdom, he doesn't come in with tanks and machine guns and squashing, you know, a, you know like a, I don't know, what's the word? Just squashing Obliterating, the yeah. enemy. Shock and awe. Yeah, right. Like God comes in to, to put his kingdom in place. God brings in the poor and the meek and the people who are hungry for righteousness. And, and these are the people who God says, you're going to change the world. You know, that's interesting. I just saw a quote this week that said, if you want to hear the voice of God, listen to the cries of the oppressed. Wow. And it got me thinking about animals, honestly. Just yeah. the suffering that animals go through in slaughterhouses, This, like we've talked about, um, dairy in the dairy industry, calves being taken from the mothers, and just how they're crying out for each other. Talk about oppressed. I mean, and as we know, the amount of, animals that are being slaughtered in the world in the United States is just unbelievable. It's millions. They're completely at our mercy. They're completely without recourse. They have no way of defending themselves, which is the way God set it up. God set it up like that we would take care of them, and instead we have oppressed them. Right, so if you want to know 
We want to hear God's voice. Listen to the voice of the oppressed, the oppressed animals, for sure. So just reading from the Beatitudes, this is New Creation Theology 101 right here. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm reading from the ESV. I think one thing that comes to my mind whenever I think about the Beatitudes and God's kingdom is that, and the already not yet, like we're bringing this kingdom on earth. We're fighting to make this world a better place. We're fighting to fulfill God's original intentions with this good creation. And when you look at people who I consider heroes, I think a lot of us would consider heroes, who have fought and even given their lives to try to make this world a better place. And what happens to them so often? What, how does the world receive them so often is the world can't stand them right. and has to eliminate them. Right. And they're killed. Right. And so it's almost like, yeah, we are in a real fight, like, you know, like spiritual warfare. Like, right. like there is a fight against sp- dark spiritual powers and, and also other humans who are not working for God's kingdom. Right. And yeah, when people, it seems like the people who really do lay their life on the line and try to make the world a better place are so, so often done away with. Right. No, I hear you, and and this is just this brings up another idea within this uh, Sermon on the Mount is where it's where we get the Lord's Prayer, and I know in church we we recite the Lord's Prayer every week. Sometimes I wonder if we recite it so much that it be, we become numb to it, and I think since I've been reading this kind of theology, this new creation theology, this what I might even call vegan theology, looking at the world in this way. I really appreciate verse 10, uh, Matthew 6, verse 10, which is part of the Lord's Prayer. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. I'll just leave it at that. No, I have to say (laughs) something because it, like, I understand, especially when when a group of people is reciting something together, they get into this cadence, you know, and and like they put in certain pauses, and it drives me crazy (laughs) because. I always want to say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want there to be a pause there. Right. I think it would it would change the way we hear it if we would just say your will be done on earth. No, exactly. No, I heaven. think that's part of the issue. I really do. Yeah. That the way we're saying it with this cadence and putting that break there. Yeah. It's not completing the thought and uh, uh, and so we don't complete the thought in our minds. Sorry to interrupt you. But another thing we've been talking about as we've been doing this research the last few weeks is, yeah, we tend to hear the Lord's Prayer in a really passive voice, like, your will be done. God, make your will be done. And 
like when we were talking about the image of God and how we are like viceroys, we are God's representatives on this, on this, we are like the king's agents. Mm -hmm. And so when a king's agent says to the king, your will be done, they mean I'm going to, I hear you and I'm going to go out and I'm going to execute what you've told me to do. Right. And I'm going to do it the way you intended. I'm going to go execute your will. And so instead of hearing it in this passive, like, oh God, make your will be done. Right. It, it really should be given all we've learned about what it means to be an image bearer. It should be, I hear your will, God, and I will go do it. Right. I will make your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Right. So let's just say it uh, in full here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. It's better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So we're, now we're just going to get into Revelation 21. And from what you know, from what we've been talking about um, in Genesis, the, the original creation, and where we're going to end up, Revelation 21. Let me just read a few passages. This is Revelation 21, uh, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Can I, can I interject? Yeah. So yeah, um, N.T. Wright makes a point of saying, when we read the first heaven and the first, first earth have passed away, the language is such that it, it means the corruption of the first heaven and the first earth nice. have passed away. This is why we need scholars, right? <laughs> but what's interesting right there, I don't know if you noticed, based on our last episode, the sea was no more. Now, we talked about last week chaos. We talked about three kinds of ideas in the Hebrew mind, that order was their highest value. And there was order, there was non-order, and there was disorder. And we said that things like the sea and darkness and the desert were kind of fell in the category of chaos, but were also non-order. And so here you see it saying, the sea was no more. So I think N.T. Wright alluded to the fact that this is an example where the new creation is for keeps. We're not exactly. gonna we're not gonna go into the matrix again yeah. and, and redo this one more time. Yeah, there's no snake in the city of God. Right. There's yeah, this is this time it's for for good. Right. And there is a reference, uh, another reference in, in Revelation referring to that as well, that uh, that this is for keeps. But anyway, so verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Mm. Again, everything we were talking about that, we, that you see throughout the canon of the Old and New Testaments is this idea of God, his dwelling place is a place of peace and harmony and abundance and there's no death and there's no mourning and there's no suffering 
And this is where he wants, these are spaces that he wants to inhabit. And he also wants us to inhabit that same space. Yeah. I mean, he's just utter love and he's determined to fulfill his original goals. And I mean, it's just so beautiful. Such a victorious message is such a victorious passage of scripture. Like God is going to transform the, this world into what God wants it to be. Right. Yeah. And I think we're going to get into next episode. We're going to talk about heaven and some of the Greek influence. And then after that, the episode after that, we're going to get into kind of this in-between state that we find ourselves in this already not yet. This, this place of we're new creation people living in this fallen state and how are we to navigate that? What are we supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. Especially if, but if we have the goal in mind of, of where we're headed, you know, how should that influence our current behavior and what is the church doing currently to get us closer to the new creation and things we've talked about like Romans eight and the fact that creation is going, this, this current creation is going to be renewed what does that say? That speaks to me. That speaks volumes about what we should be doing. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah. And uh, we'll check you next time. Have a great day, everybody. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye.